90% of financial exploitation of older adults are somebody they know and trust. 60% of those are family members. Introducing The Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mike Carroll and International VP Mark Solomon. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Carroll, International President of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. We are in National Harbor, Maryland at the Great Gaylord Hotel. How you doing, Mark Solomon, our International Vice President? What's up? Mikey, Mike, I'm doing well, man. Uh, enjoying the conference and uh, just one after the other. Great speakers, great presentations, and uh, so I couldn't ask for anything more. You're right. The conference has been outstanding. Like you said, a lot of great speakers, presenters. We're in the exhibitors area, right? A lot of great exhibitors here. In fact, were you over at the one over there? They were giving away the free flashlights. Uh, I have not hit that. Oh, I got one 40 yet. of them if you want to buy one. Uh, I think you're only you supposed to take one, one Mike. Oh, oops. <laughs> I <have> to return <laughs> them. <laughs> no. Well, hey, listen, we also got something else returning, and that's our next guest. April DeValconair is coming back to the show. She did our episode number three on elder fraud. And by popular demand, we were getting requests all across the world to bring April back. So we're excited to have her. And uh, But we're talking on a different topic today. We're talking about power of attorney theft. So welcome to the show, April. Thank you, Mark and Mike. I appreciate you having me back on the podcast. It's great to see you guys again. And I'm looking forward to talking about this power of attorney theft and what we can do to, to try to prevent it. And if it's happened how to investigate it. Well, let me ask you first, how have you been enjoying the conference? The conference has been great. Nice. There's a lot of networking going on. There's a lot of great presentations and educational pieces that have occurred this week. And it's just been a tremendous, tremendous opportunity to have everybody back in person. So, hey, for those who don't remember, April is our Wisconsin chapter president of the IFCI. So uh, she does an incredible job with many, the chapter. How many members do you have in the in, uh, Wisconsin chapter? Just about 100. That's good for that chapter. And you got a uh, training seminar coming up, too, in October, right? We do. You yes. Want, you want me to come up there and speak? I'll come up there. <laughs> our agenda's full for this year, but oh, maybe next it. year. I right. think she just shut you down. <laughs> I know. So anyway. We always love having well, you, Mike. I, you know, you the, know that. But the tolls are expensive. I'm not, I'm not coming up there. <laughs> hey, Mike, and in addition, uh, she also has her own company. It's called Fortress Financial Education, LLC. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at that company? Certainly. With regards to Fortress, what we actually do is we help with the investigation processes of all white collar crime. So we do forensics analysis of cases. We work with different government agencies, private agencies, you know, um, just trying to help put cases together, whether that's trying to get them to law enforcement or whether that's trying to get them from law enforcement to prosecution. Because it really depends on where you're at and where you're stuck in the justice system as to where you need the assistance. And that's where I come in. I help with exhibits. I help with the investigation of the actual financial pieces of it and uh, want to get people on the road to recovery, essentially. You know, we, we don't want them to be continued to be victims. We want them to move forward and, and heal. Well, that's awesome what you do to protect the elderly. I got to ask you, though, what is like power of attorney theft? So power of attorney theft is when someone has been designated as an agent on a power of attorney for banks, financial institutions, um, assets, property, those types of things. And 
that person who's been named as the agent becomes a fiduciary. So they have a financial responsibility to the person or the principal of that power of attorney. And the theft comes in when they start using those funds or those assets for their own benefit or for their own personal use. So essentially that theft, a lot of people don't either understand what it is or what authority they have to utilize that power of attorney asset, or they just decide, hey, I'm now the power of attorney, so I'm just going to start writing checks like it's my own account. And you absolutely cannot do that as a fiduciary. You know, April, that's really tough. You know, a power of attorney that is somebody that you trust and then they take advantage of you. Absolutely, Mike. That's part of the problem is that a lot of these are not reported. You know, the victim doesn't want to report it because it's someone that they know and trust. And if you actually look at the statistics of it, 90% of financial exploitation of older adults, typically where the power of attorneys come into play, are somebody they know and trust. 60% of those are family members. Mm. Wow. So, you know, I think one of the other issues here is that uh, it always seems like that family member, that person close to him that gained that power of attorney is always making justifications for why they're stealing the money or are using it inappropriately. Absolutely. The most common one is I'm the only beneficiary. It's going to be mine eventually. I just want to take it now. And that's the most common one. But in reality, that may not be the case because if the person that is the principal of that power of attorney may need health care or health services, they may have to go into an assisted living, those funds need to be used for that so that that principal doesn't have to go on state or federal aid. You used a, a legal term, fiduciary responsibility. And maybe for our audience who may not understand that, con that legal concept, what does it mean when it comes to these power of attorneys? So fiduciary responsibility means that someone else has the responsibility of the principal's assets. So whatever assets those may be, whether they're physical, whether they're cash, whether they're property, whatever that is, they are responsible for those and they have to do what's in the best interest of the principal with those assets. So basically what's, you can't use it for personal gain, personal use has to be used towards the interest and the well-being of that person. That is correct. Okay, great. April, I'm thinking a power of attorney is not necessarily an attorney, right? It could just be a family member. It oversees uh, somebody else's in the family's financial. Correct. It could be a family member. It could be anybody, actually. It could be could be someone that works at a financial institution. Okay. Some of them will actually, you can hire them to do that. It could be a neighbor. It could be a friend. It could be a spouse. It could be a sibling or a child, adult child, that is. You know, so it could be anybody. But you're correct. The power of attorney does not have to be legally an attorney of law. Okay, so let me ask you this. So what are some things you need to consider when you're choosing a power of attorney? So you want to consider, obviously, who you trust, but that's not the only consideration. You want to make sure that you're looking at, you know, who has your best interest in mind. If you are asking someone to take care of your assets, then, you know, how do they take care of their own money? Are they in good financial standing? You know, you don't necessarily want to choose an adult child who's currently going through a divorce. You don't want to be a joint account holder with someone that is potentially, you know, going to be using your funds. So you need to look at different things that may be red flags. Is the adult child you're considering, do they have an addiction, whether that's alcohol or drugs or something else? That is not going to be your best option as a power of attorney to take care of your assets. So you want to look at all those surrounding things. And I know one of the things that comes up a lot is people are like, hey, look, I never got married. I don't have any kids. Maybe my siblings are too far away. I don't have anybody. You can still reach out and find someone to be a power of attorney. Like I said, financial institutions or investment companies, they will actually do it for you. And it's, it's essentially a corporate power of attorney, but they will do that for you. But again, don't feel obligated. We don't want people to feel obligated. Oh, it has to be a family member. No, it doesn't. 
It has to be somebody that has your best interests in mind. And you can always reach out to your financial investment advisor, your family attorney, someone that you currently work with and that you trust and ask them for suggestions. April, as part of your company, do you also work with families about setting up a will before even getting a power attorney? Don't you think that they should have a will just in case something happens? The best practice is for everybody to have a will. I cannot practice law as I'm a certified paralegal, not an attorney. I can certainly help give you suggestions as to types of documents you need to get together to take to your attorney to work on a will. A will is a great idea to have in place, but it's also something that you need to consider of, is it sitting in your home? Is it sitting in a safe deposit box or who did you file that with? You know, did you file it with your county probate or register of deeds office so that somebody has access to it? Um, But I can give them guidance on where to best find resources in order to put a will together. April, um, quick question I have is uh, there's different types of power of attorney as well, correct? So somebody might claim that power of attorney, but it may not be over finances. What are some of the different types of powers of attorney? Mark, there's a few different aspects to that question, actually. There's two primary differences. So there's a financial power of attorney and there's a healthcare power of attorney. And they're exactly as they're titled. One handles your financial assets, one handles your healthcare decisions. Um, And that's where a living will, you know, do you want to be on a feeding tube or do you want to have additional medical services available to you? Those are completely separate. However, there's also the different aspects of when a power of attorney is enacted. So there is a general power of attorney, there is a durable power of attorney, there is a springing power of attorney, and there is a limited power of attorney four different types, and they all mean something different. So that's part of what I do through the education that I provide is try to identify for everybody what those different types are, what they represent, when do they actually become activated, because there's a difference when you actually sign the document versus when it actually becomes Mm. activated. Okay. So you're the president of Fortress Financial Education, LLC. What's like the number one thing that you offer to the public? I do a ton of different education. So we do education on elder financial exploitation. We do it on social engineering. We do it for financial institutions. How do we train our employees to watch for red flags, especially on these power of attorney documents? Because you may have frontline tellers who are 18 years old and they have no idea what a power of attorney is, let alone what it does. So when they're receiving them, they have to understand what the differences are. And are you seeing cases where um, they're getting the victim to sign over this power without their knowledge? Maybe just saying, hey, I need you to sign this uh, form or document. Uh, How do you go about proving uh, whether or not that person had informed consent or the ability to sign over power of attorney? Mark, that's a very good question, and it's a very difficult answer. (laughs) So there's some things that can be done to try to make that determination. Um, Sometimes we, well, we always, we verify the dates, right? So we want to look at when was it signed? Was that person living at home in their residence? Were they at work? Were they in rehab? Were they in the hospital? You know, some of those different aspects to kind of determine whether or not they actually had the capacity to understand what the document was and or to sign it. You know, if they just had a stroke and they're in the hospital and they're hooked up to a bunch of different wires and tubes and someone throws three sets of papers at you and tells you to sign the documents, they may not understand what's going on because they have so much else going on, you know, with pain meds and, you know, medical procedures going on. And maybe they they think they're signing for a medical procedure versus understanding that someone just threw a will in front of them or threw a power of attorney in front of them that 
they just, there's too much going on. They're too overwhelmed to actually understand it. But we've got other cases where we have had people had documents put in front of them saying, you have to sign this power of attorney or I'm not going to let you see your grandkids anymore. And that's something that's called undue influence. And that's an entirely different aspect. It's much harder to prove because in that case, I need that victim to actually tell me that that occurred to be able to prove it. Yeah, you have some where a family might bring in a healthcare worker that watches grandma, grandpa, you know, five days a week, and they're there more than the family is. And then next thing the family finds out is that the healthcare worker is the power of attorney. And it always leads, I see cases like that where it leads to disputes and it ends up in court and trying to determine who exactly is the power of attorney. That is correct, Mike. We have had numbers of cases where there's multiple powers of attorneys and you have to actually determine which version is valid and which one not only valid in in timing, right? So maybe they did officially change it from one person to another person date-wise, but you know, if the say the new caregiver becomes power of attorney, was it a valid signature? When did it occur? Where did it occur? You know, those types of different aspects that we have to take into consideration. I remember this happening to a famous ball player back in Chicago, uh, Ernie Banks. It made the news. It was the same type thing. A healthcare worker came to power of attorney and ended up in the courts and made the news for. I don't know what the outcome was, but it does happen a lot, especially for people that you you know. It certainly happens a lot more than we would hope for. What about situations where maybe a family member, loved one, finds out that a power of attorney's been signed? They didn't know anything about it. Uh, might be a stranger, somebody known for a short period of time. Is there a possibility that these documents can be forged by the person? And and should they look at the signature and compare it to a known signature of, of the loved one? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's all something that can be done as part of an investigation. You know, if that's the occurrence, we need to make sure we're getting other agencies involved. We need to be getting Adult Protective Services sure. or their Department of Aging involved. We need to be getting law enforcement involved. If there's a victim support group in the area, we need to make sure that they're getting involved to, you know, help support the victim through this process because it is not a quick process. This is a very lengthy investigation when it comes to dealing with these types of issues. I'm sure you have incidents where an individual who has a power of attorney might be suffering from dementia. Does that come into play? It does. It absolutely does. And then we also have to take into consideration the medical documents. You know, were they ever diagnosed? If they were, when were they diagnosed compared to when the documents were signed? You know, were they close in proximity? Because dementia, as we all know, is not something that occurs from one day to the next. It is a very lengthy progression. Um, So that's definitely an issue that we have to take into consideration. And April, is there training available to people who are considering becoming uh, power of attorney agents? There absolutely is. So there are agencies. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau provides documentation and booklets, actually, lengthy booklets that will actually tell you what you can do, what you can't do, you know, what are the legal ramifications of certain things. So there are certainly educational pieces out there and their ability to teach people that are preparing for it and or if you know, someone is looking at who they want to be their agent, they can actually go through those booklets as well and and learn, you know, what are some of these things that I need to be looking for? So they can actually get those online at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You can you can download them or you can actually ask them to mail you a physical copy. They got a lot of great information. You know, they we can absolutely put, we can do. put that on our show notes, yeah, the link to them, because they provide a lot of great information to the public. I believe the Federal Trade Commission also does. Yes. 
April, you've been an amazing guest. Thank you for coming on today. Uh, this is your second episode, so one more, you will set the record. So awesome. we got, we got to get you back. <laughs> Looking for forward number, to it, for Mike. number three. And uh, thank you for all you do. We really appreciate that, and I hope complete success with your company. Mike and I really want to say thank you, too, for what you do for the IFCI, being a, a chapter uh, director for the Wisconsin chapter, and just doing a phenomenal job. You're one of our go-to people. Always count on you. You're always willing to help uh, and share information. So we appreciate you being on the podcast again. And uh, like Mike said, we'll have to go for number three soon. Thank you, Mike and Mark, for having me again today. I really appreciate it. You know, it's great working with you guys because you really do make and break our cases. IFCI in general, we have a great team here and we we really build off of our relationships because these are the way that we can actually get these cases investigated and prosecuted. It's so vitally important. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I know, I know Mike and I are thinking about our listeners and we thank you guys for tuning in once again. If you get an opportunity, if you're not a subscriber, please click on that button. So take a few seconds to subscribe and our president has a, a final message. Just one more time. Thank you, April the Buccaneer. Nailed it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guests' opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.